I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, Royfield here. Before we start, we have a new advertiser. Now, before some of you go, ugh, and fast forward a couple of minutes, um, please lend me your ears because this is important because it helps to keep the lights on around here and pay some bills. And this advertiser is also very different. Knowledge of the classics is back in style. You know, it's people like those philosopher authors, people like Homer and Cicero and Spinola, and some of the moderns like Nietzsche as well. Online Great Books is designed to help you to develop a regular habit of reading the great works of Western culture. With weekly reading goals, reading reminders, accountability tools and a dedicated community of fellow readers, they can help you keep on track and schedule with your reading. OnlineGreatBooks.com has a reading goal system that is designed to help you to progress through reading and the comprehension of the great books with just three one-hour reading sessions each week. Every month they select for you an edition of one of the great books and they will send it directly to your home. They begin with Homer and then progress through the works of Plato, Aristotle, Descartes and then on to the moderns. They even do Shakespeare. So if you're interested in developing a lifelong habit of reading and studying the classics of Western culture, go to onlinegreatbooks.com forward slash ROI Enter the promo code ROI to get your 25% off your first three months of learning. Enjoy. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. That Britain is just a small island that no one pays attention to. A former colony won the right to determine its own destiny. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Royfield Brown in Birmingham, in the bosom of my family. I'm hanging out with mum and dad. And today we are joined by Amanda Marcotte of Salon in Brooklyn and by the lovely Alice Thwaite in Oxford. She sometimes works for the Echo Chamber when she's not doing PhD type stuff. Say hello, ladies. Hello. Hello. In a week that has seen a Russian journalist come back from the dead, we ask, what is going on in Roseanne Barr's head? All right, we have the breaking news. ABC News, uh, ABC, I should say, just releasing a statement moments ago after the star Roseanne Barr went off on a racist and extremely offensive Twitter rant earlier in the day. Let's go back to our media correspondent, Brian Stelter. So what is ABC saying? ABC has just issued a stunning statement, Wolf, that says the show has been canceled. I'll read you the two-sentence statement. Roseanne's Twitter statement, these racist remarks earlier in the day, are abhorrent, repugnant, and inconsistent with our values, and that we have decided to cancel her show. Uh, just a short statement there from Shannon Dungey, who is the president of ABC Entertainment. By the way, Dungey, one of the most prominent African-American women in network television, in Hollywood. She and other ABC executives were, were horrified by these tweets earlier in the day, and they decided to pull the plug on this sitcom. It's a remarkable move, Wolf. We, you and I talked about this 45 minutes ago, and I told you I couldn't imagine Roseanne being fired because she was such a moneymaker for ABC. 
It's nothing new to see a politician or a celebrity apologising for a rogue tweet, but few have had the effect of Roseanne Barr's racist tweet about Valerie Jarrett. Within hours, the head of Disney had not only called Jarrett to apologise, but Barr's newly rebooted sitcom was cancelled. I apologise to Valerie Jarrett and to all Americans, said Barr in a follow-up tweet. But Amanda, is it possible to forgive and how should or would Roseanne or some celebrity racist, if they were truly sorry, prove that they are? Well, I mean, I think we can all take it as a given that she is not truly sorry because as soon as she made her apologies, she, whether she took another Ambien with some alcohol or not, went back on Twitter and started backtracking, making excuses, retweeting supporters, that sort of thing. And, you know, the fact of the matter is Roseanne Barr has had a history of racist comments, conspiracy theories, unhinged rantings. This is just who she is. Um, I see no purpose in even indulging this talk of forgiveness because I see absolutely no reason to believe that she's sorry for what she said. She's just sorry she got caught. Absolutely. And um, I don't think that she's at all apologetic. But just imagine that somebody was truly um, apologetic for something that they've done and have done it so publicly is it possible for that person to have a real mere culpa and to be forgiven? It seems to be that we live in a time where um, we never forgive anybody anything. Alice, discuss. Cool. Um, can I can I actually just ask Amanda a question, actually? I know that you were talking about forgiveness and that kind of thing. But I just mm-hmm. think that why would she be sorry, given I hadn't even heard of her before? She's, I mean, OK, I'm in Britain but I don't know how famous she is in America. And suddenly I've heard of her. I know that she's got a show. I know all these various different things about her. And there is this, um, and Amanda, you probably know a lot more about this because isn't there the idea now that we have silence after big events like suicides? Because when Robin Williams died, the suicide rate went up by 10% in the following three or four months after he died. So now people acknowledge that suicide is a thing, but don't actually amplify that message. What's 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 like the take on amplifying messages like this? Because ultimately it shows that someone who was quite, well, in my, in my eyes, a nobody has now become a somebody by doing something that we all, we don't like. You know, we don't want to condone this kind of behavior. So is there kind of a policy for journalists there? Because I, I, I don't know about this issue of forgiveness, but personally, if I was her PR team, I'd be pretty chuffed with myself right now. <laughs> Um, so, I, you know, I would say that actually Roseanne, while her fame isn't as high as it was in the 90s, is an extremely famous person in the United States. Um, she's definitely one of the celebrities that's so famous that she's known just by her first name only. You know, it's like Michael Jackson or, you know, Prince or somebody of that nature. <laughs> And, you know, she had one of the highest rated TV shows in the 90s. Uh, She's, you know, I would say on the level of Bill Cosby in terms of the public memory of her as this huge TV star that everybody recognizes instantly. And, And the whole point of her TV show coming back in the United States was that they were trying to recapture some of that 90s magic where there was a monoculture and everybody was watching the same show. Now, I don't think that was effective, but... It is true that the re- the reboot of the show Roseanne um, was one of the highest rated shows on television, just outright. There is no such thing as kind of ignoring her until so, she goes away. She's literally one of the biggest stars in our country right now, I'd say, or she was <laughs> briefly again um, until this all happened and maybe she'll fade into the background. So I, I don't know that there's ignoring it. And I think that, you know, unlike certain kind of things where you elevate it and it can make it worse, I think this has been for the United States is very clarifying for a lot of people. There's a tendency to excuse a lot of Trump supporters' racism by, you know, suggesting that it's just coming from economic insecurity or some other more understandable place. But you can't actually say that about Roseanne Barr, a, a wealthy celebrity. <laughs> So it's 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 mm-hmm. been a helpful I hope educational for a lot of people about how racism is just racism. 
the reason I asked that question, actually, I'm sorry to take over the questions, you asking the questions, Roy. No, 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 listen, um, you, not, you make me redundant, feel free. <laughs> I don't mean to do that at all. It's just because um, the idea of forgiveness is very much, um, it's, it's A, it's a religious ideal, right? Um, but also it's kind of in the ideas of punishment. So how do we punish people? Um, there's kind of retribution, there's deterrence, there's reform. And forgiveness is definitely part of retribution. So um, I know that Jesus wasn't an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but the whole idea was that um, you forgave um, the people who transgressed you or whatever that meant. And it just basically meant that, well, I don't really know what it means if it is what I'm trying to get at. And I'm not really sure what forgiveness means in a modern day age. the the, re- the reason for just to ask the question is because he said that she's sorry. I do not believe she's sorry. I believe the man deck. <laughs> Alice, you're making me feel old because Roseanne <laughs> really <laughs> was a big show on Channel Four in the UK in the nineties. Oh. Um, it, it, Channel Four Friday nights. It was a big thing uh, for for a few years. But as uh, Amanda says, you know, her star had somewhat waned because that show kind of went off TV, um, and it coming back was a big deal. A massive rating smash. Twenty seven million people watched that first episode, wow. the, the rebooted episode, and. For me, what she summed up is something which was lacking on TV in the United States, but definitely also in the United Kingdom, which is blue collar, working class people actually being portrayed sympathetically on TV. And that's something which is completely and utterly uh, gone away from from TV on both sides of the the Atlantic. In effect, um, it's all middle class, aspirational, uh, good looking um, bright, young, shiny things. And there was this plump woman with her overweight husband and a somewhat dysfunctional family. And they were incredibly ordinary, but very homely. Um, this is a question uh, to you, Amanda. Do you think that, um, why is it, sorry, that there are so few blue collar Americans on prime time on TV anymore? We've now given the we've given the conservatives a, another martyr here to say, look, you know, we are marginalised, we are persecuted because somebody that looks like many Americans um, is now off TV. Well, I think they're going to try to say that because Republicans in the United States have gotten a lot of leverage off portraying themselves as somehow more blue collar than liberals. The actual statistics show the opposite. Uh, Democratic voters tend to make less money, tend to be more working class than Republican voters. Um, And I think they're going to try that. But I think we should reject that narrative for the very precise reason that there's no reason to equate working class with conservatism or professional middle class with liberalism. And so as, as to the other part of the question... You know, why isn't there blue collar, more sympathetic portrayals of blue collar people on TV? And I think that a lot of the reason is because the people who write TV tend to come from privilege. The people who tend to make TV tend to come from privilege. And so, you know, they tend to write what they know. Um, In the 90s, Roseanne Barr was different because she actually had come from a working class background and kind of clawed her way into the Hollywood scene. And she brought that experience to the show. The other reason is that television, at least here is, uh, is funded by advertising still, especially cable and network television and advertisers want shows to be aspirational so that the people in the audience feel the need to spend more money. I think that's it's a pretty blunt capitalistic enterprise. Do you not think it could be something to do with the fact that there there was social mobility um for you know in the the baby boomers in the 90s were in their 30s or so and there was quite a lot of social mobility there like Oprah came to the fore in that kind of era as well right whereas today you know if you're a working class kid it's virtually impossible to try and get into the middle classes at all. Um, and that's related to, well, certainly in the UK, things like property prices, um, general, um, like how the cost of living, the stagnant wages um, for graduate jobs, these kind of things. So it could just be a reflection of actually what's going on in society as a whole, that this whole idea of social mobility and a meritocracy is just failing us in 2018. That seems reasonable to me. Yeah, I mean, 
you, you definitely see this change in society where even my generation had some so, some social mobility because uh, if nothing else, we still had a chance to go to college without being, you know, completely overwhelmed by debt. Mm. It's exactly the same phenomena of both sides of the Atlantic that basically since what, about 1973, you can literally put it, put, put the dividing line there is that there has been in, increasing kind of sclerosis in terms of um, people moving up the economic food chain. And, and to be fair, it's happening all throughout the West, but it seems to be much more pointed um, in the United Kingdom and the United States. My parents' generation, who uh, my father could do a blue collar job, he, he was a bus driver and on retirement, he owns three houses. You could not be a bus driver today in London or New York or wherever and hope by the time you retire to own more than one property. You struggle to own one property in London. You're going to be renting. Yeah. And, and I think that that is one of, the, one of the many reasons why you actually have um, in the media – um, and with the decline of, let's say, newspapers within the UK, so I talk about a market which I know much more than, than the US in this regard, that in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, you had people who came from working class backgrounds who could become journalists within local media and then could go into local television, local radio. Those economic gateways into those professions now are locked off. You have to now have gone into, gone to, uh, university and, and and generally quite a good one. Media in the UK has become much more centralised, and in effect, whether it is um, TV and then drama, you have a smaller pool um, socially in terms of people who are in in that industry, and then they write what they know and they employ people who are like them. So it becomes a self perpetuating thing. So. Um, instead of us having the equivalent to uh, Roseanne in the UK, we have 2.4 children, which is a great program. But it is um, very typical in that it's a, a middle class family with middle class angst uh, living in South London with, with, their, with their three kids running, running hither and dither. And, and it's well written and it's very, very funny. But you go back to the 1970s and watching UK TV and you had on the buses blue collar workers portrayed sympathetically you had love thy neighbor you had rising damp you had all these shows which showed um working class people and it just doesn't happen anymore but i witter on one thing though i'm going to put to you alice Barr also tweeted that chelsea clinton was married to a relative of george soros and then followed up by saying when she was when she was then called out on that to say that that is actually just factually incorrect mm. sorry i have tweeted incorrect information about you chelsea please forgive me by the way george soros is a nazi who turned his fellow jews into the germans to be uh, put into concentration camps and stole their wealth were you aware of that that makes it all right doesn't it chelsea now people are much more offended about the uh, Muslim Brotherhood and ape line to Valerie Jarrett than they are about this accusation of George Soros being um, a Jew who is a Nazi. Mm. Why is it that we kind of let that accusation slide? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> not, not, there is, not, you know, not being from America, so um, it's no, pretty... well, no, but, but you're a human being, I mean, and I... we, we call people Nazis all the time on social media. And I'm not Jewish, but Rosenbar is, and George Soros is, and that has got to be one hell of a slur to, to throw about, and it's factually incorrect. But our whole focus is on the insult to Valerie Jarrett. And this has almost gone underneath the radar. Yeah, I mean, I I hadn't heard that. To be fair, um, my 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 boyfriend's Jewish, and so we do talk about the kind of the rhetoric around anti-Semitism and the rhetoric around race quite a lot um, because anti-Semitism is. I mean, this is just me speaking from vague conversations, right? I'm sure there's um, scholars out there who know far more than me, but it's it, it's not as easy to identify whether or not someone's Jewish as someone is um 
and in possession of black skin. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a, you know we know, we know it's a social construct, so um, mm-hmm. it's just easy. It's just easier to kind of identify. And I think we live in a very e- like visual world right now. We live in an incredibly visual world, and ultimately, Jewish people um, don't have the kind of economic um, deprivations. Generally, I, I mean, I'm making huge generalizations here that um, I'm not very comfortable doing, given I don't know that much about the subject as um as black people do as women do as i know latina people do for these reasons like um i went to a series of lectures recently on um scientific a history of scientific racism and it there were many things that were excellent about the talk um but there was one thing that kind of stood out and that was that um he he claimed that nazis um just uh, just kind of targeted black people and he kind of implied that and I, I was quite upset by this, but also, I'll be honest, I didn't want to kind of challenge this kind of thought when I was a white person who wanted to listen. And I knew this was kind of like a safe space for black people at the time. And I remember going home and discussing this with um, my boyfriend and discussing this with, um, you know, various friends who are people of color and just saying, what would you have done in that situation? And the thing that we keep on coming to is this whole idea of identity politics still is about victimhood for one specific character you know identity and it's very difficult when you're trying to champion the problems of your you know your identity so when I talk about feminism there is intersectional feminism but the language for that is very difficult to come by in when in a pithy tweet I know we've got 280 characters now um, but it's very difficult to express nuance even in that kind of short period of time so one thing that I'm constantly on the lookout is how do we how do we move beyond identity politics and I don't really want to compare this to what happened with Roseanne Barr and the tweet that she did, because I think that was horrific. I think that they probably kind of come under the same large umbrella. But how do we move beyond this language of identity politics into something that can be constructive so that I as a woman can say, yes, there are these issues for women, but there are bigger issues for white working class women or um, black, even, you know, white working class men um for black people how can we how can we start talking about equality for everyone rather than just for a particular identity but there is a situation that we have where when we talk about equality we tend to then hone in on one specific area rather than thinking about equality as a whole and i'm not i'm not sure what the answer is there Mm. you definitely have the germ of something and which is really why i posed the question the way that i did that we as people of colour, black folks, are more sensitive to jibes thrown in, in our direction for historical reasons, for, you know, the last five, six hundred years worth of uh, economic uh, deprivation, uh, which was preceded by enslavement. And when somebody views out something which is utterly a lie and if Roseanne Barr was not Jewish, you would say what, what she said was definitely anti-Semitic. I think a lot of black people would think that the racism would trump the anti-Semitism for, for the reason that though Jewish people have been persecuted and six million people were killed just some 70 years ago in concentration camps in Europe, economically, um, they have as a whole, they seem to have done better, whether it's in the United Kingdom or in France or in the state of Israel, better than, than people of colour. So it feels hotter. It feels worse. It feels um, like we're still um, chafing under a system which is much more pointedly negative towards us. However, what she said was utterly venal, was wrong. And her apology is just so casual, like it doesn't matter. And and the re- and there is a narrative that you can call people Nazis, even Jewish people Nazis, and it doesn't really matter. And it's just something which I think we all need to just take five and just actually just kind of. Oh, I was just gonna but, pop in and mm, say I think I, I, the other thing to kind of consider here is it might just be very simple, which is the anti-Semitic um, conspiracy theories around George Soros are so complicated so weird, so obtuse, and kind of deliberately so that a lot of people don't want to get into it. (laughs) When you say a negative thing about a black person's looks, that's obviously racist. That's a lot easier to criticize than, than spending five minutes explaining why the obsession with George Soros is anti-Semitic. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a really tricky subject though, in general. And I think it's something that 
we all need to because again we're so conscious of of how we speak I mean I certainly am very conscious of how I speak and I'd just love to have in some respects a more open dialogue with and in in a space in a safe space as well about how we how we counter all of these negative even saying um safe space a lot of people would say you shouldn't have a safe space you should be able to have a, a robust conversation i i completely disagree with that and i could kind of point you to articles that i've written on that subject because i see safe spaces as just being not necessarily a mindset but literally a physical space that you enter into for 20 minutes a week or something like that so that when you do speak you speak much more freely and you speak with people who kind of vaguely know what you're trying to get at and aren't criticizing um the basic foundations of what you're saying when you think of safe spaces, I think of chemistry departments. Chemistry departments don't let people who are against science into their department. Environmental departments don't let people who deny climate. Well, they let climate change agnostics into their departments, but they don't kind of fundamentally challenge the science behind it. So I think that safe mm. spaces are actually a really good thing. Um, and, I, I, and, you know, I run the Echo Chamber Club. I'm all for open dialogue, but I'm for open dialogue when we all know what we have to say. We all have something reasonable to say. And you can only really construct that in groups of like-minded individuals, really. Yeah, but right, I'm going to go back to something which you said before. And, and, and I don't get this. So the, I'm asking a genuine question to, <laughs> to the pair of you. I don't understand what identity politics is because the people who are anti-identity politics identify as, for the most part, white and male. And they say that they are patriotic. So they self-identify and they then and then they talk about intersectionality and how wrong that is and identity politics and that people are seeking to divide based on on race and colour and gender and and whatever. But that's exactly what they do. So I just fundamentally do not understand that construct. And then I bring that forward if we're going to talk about a safe space, is that but you have to agree if you're going to have a full and frank, honest and respectful debate with somebody, you have to agree a certain set of of ground rules, don't you? And that's what liberal democracy has all been about for the last uh, 60 years since, since the Second World War, is to basically say that progress does mean that all sections of society are equal, should be equal and if they're not equal we're going to try and make them to be equal and that's what the big push in the 1960s was all about was to recognize that people of color uh in the in the united states for to take that as as an example that they didn't have full civil rights voting rights we you recognize that society recognized that and says they need to be then um equalized in front of the law but now we have a situation situation whereby even though you can look at various economic indices, whether it's in the United States or the or, or the United Kingdom, which says that certain sections of society do not strive economically, you can categorically state it mathematically, economically, on sheets of paper, this just doesn't happen. That then when you say that this this section of society, whatever it is, you know, women earn 70 nine cents on the dollar compared to a man but then some people argue that no it's identity politics but what you're entering into there are sociological and evolutionary reasons why women have to be kept in this state so it's very hard when those people are actually then subverting the identity politics and actually using it back at you to say that identity politics is actually a bad thing and i and i and i, and I actually struggle to understand how we can actually have a safe space if you are arguing with people, debating. I don't think arguing is a hot thing. Trying to debate, trying to make change so society is fair on both sides of the Atlantic, everywhere on planet Earth, when people deny um, that certain sections of society economically, structurally are disadvantaged, even though the evidence is there. So I actually had a conversation very similar to this about two, two and a half, maybe three weeks ago with a guy from a kind of an ethics lab, you know, there's all these ethics labs that are jumping up around the place. Some of them are ethical, some of them aren't. <laughs> and he was, uh, basically, he said he believes, his foundation is he believes in the enlightenment and he believes in the scientific rational method. I was like, okay, I mean, I I disagree with that 
personally, but that's because I don't believe that there is any kind of methodological way of really accessing a truth. I think that, you know, truth exists in many different ways and that you need to be genuine to what your own truth is, which is not something that Trump does. For instance, he doesn't have kind of a a methodological truth. Um, He just kind of is a bit of a bullshitter. Um, And he continued and he said, for example, I hate the way that feminists are brainwashing women into believing that they should be in tech. And as a a woman who's currently studying studying at the Oxford Internet Institute, I was kind of taken aback by this. And then he went on to say, there are studies that show that in Sweden, um, women are it's the most equal place for gender in in the world and women actually do tend to do more kind of emotional labor jobs I suppose what you call it and men tend to do more of these kind of scientific techie mathematical jobs and I was just staring at him like how on earth can you believe in the scientific method and you've taken one bizarre study because there are bizarre studies like the bell jar was written in the 90s. It's definitely not reflective of scientific research today. And then stare at me and say, I believe in the scientific method. I said, what, you know, what is this scientific method that you're talking about? Because, you know, scientific method is different for social sciences, for physics, for mathematics. And he was like, well, it's just rational inquiry. I was like, I've no idea what rationality you're coming from, because it's not the same sort of rationality that I share. Um, so it's, it was kind of that expression of how do you have this conversation? I was just pushing back on these ideas of, you know, what is rationality? Where is the method? And trying to be as, you know, as, as open to the conversation as possible. But it, I think there really are inconsistencies in, in the ideas that some of these, um, again, the people, yeah, you know, the people who are against feminism or against, um, I suppose, constructive equality in ways that they don't believe in quotas. It's, it's weird the way they think sometimes. Um, but in, in many ways, you're not really sure where their beliefs stem from and, and how you're going to change their beliefs because they're so deep rooted in what they see around them. Um, so, yeah, it was just a, a little anecdote, which I've been thinking a lot about, which um, hopefully can kind of shed some light on this. Well, let, let's end this section. Um Amanda, I've got a little kind of anecdote. Well, Roseanne, she reflected on her tweet at the end of all this kerfuffle by saying she blamed it on Ambien. Now, <laughs> we don't have Ambien as a, as a brand in, in the UK. Now, is racism one of its known side effects? Uh, no. Uh, she also kind of implied she'd been drinking alcohol, which I must I must warn people is if you're if if you're going to take Ambien, which I do not recommend, do not mix it with alcohol for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think um, you know I think that her excuse about she I, I I find it kind of baffling that she even whipped that out as an excuse because it's like she was already known as an unhinged racist conspiracy theorist, and therefore adding alcohol and drugs to the mix and then going on Twitter doesn't seem like the <laughs> the wisest way to deal with that problem. Um, unfortunately, I do think for her, for the, the Trump supporting crowd, the sort of racist crowd out there that will actually be an effective excuse because to them, a lot of this discussion about racism and bigotry is not about what's in your heart, but what's in your mouth. Right. Like the the kind of narrative about political correctness that, at least in the United States, has taken hold and that Donald Trump promotes pretty heavily is that everyone is secretly a racist, right? That everyone is secretly a bigot, and that liberals are just a bunch of finger wagging nannies that are trying to discourage people from being their true selves, right? And they they basically reject the notion that at least white liberals actually disagree with racism and sexism. They, they think that we harbor those feelings in our heart and are just censoring ourselves. So this notion that you take some drugs and drink some wine and next thing you know, you've unleashed the racism kind of fits mm-hmm. into that narrative because, you know, in vino veritas, right? <laughs> and I think that we... <laughs> I think that that's going to be a, that's that's a hump that's very difficult to get over because you know 
attempts to deny that that's actually the case when white liberals step forward and go, no, actually, I don't drink a bunch of alcohol and suddenly get racist or take Ambien and suddenly get racist. Like conservatives are just going to roll their eyes and be like, see, they're just, they, they're virtue signaling again. They're just being politically correct again. So we're kind of at a stasis where one side says, you know, you can get over bigotry and racism. And the other side says, no, you're just censoring yourself. The overwhelming result in the Irish referendum has created fresh momentum for the campaign to change abortion laws in Northern Ireland. Cabinet Minister Penny Mordaunt, whose brief includes women and equalities, has been quoted as saying the Irish vote was a historic day for Ireland and a hopeful one for Northern Ireland. And her government colleague, Anne Milton, a former Minister for Women, went further, saying she'd be in favour of a free vote in the Commons. Traditionally, um, votes on abortion have always been a matter of free vote. I feel quite strongly about that. So you think it should be a free vote? And if there were a free free vote, vote, would you vote to liberalise in Northern Ireland? Personally, would you do that? I would, personally. I I say I need to see the detail of the amendment. But personally, yes, I believe in a woman's right to choose. After the Republic of Ireland's historic vote to repeal the Eighth Amendment and to allow abortion, Theresa May has been urged to help liberalise Northern Ireland's abortion laws and to bring them in line, into line with the rest of the UK. Alice, were you shocked that abortion was still illegal in a part of the UK? Uh, I wasn't shocked because I knew about it. <laughs> I must admit... I'd forgotten. Oh, right. I had forgotten. It's something which I knew in the deep recesses of mine, but I was somewhat surprised when I was like, oh, yes, this thing still has gone. Uh, but anyway, sorry, I hijacked no, you. No, you were it's, I, th- I think it's some of those things that if you've got Irish friends, um, female friends, you're very, very conscious of it. You're very, very conscious that I think it's like 10 women a day were flying over to the UK to have an abortion, which is quite a crazy number, really, given that the population of Ireland is something like 4.5 million. Um, and again, it just goes to show that um, law in, in this kind of respect doesn't actually ban something. It, it just makes it incredibly... Wait a minute. Oh, oh. Are we getting our islands mixed up? Because there's a Republic of Ireland which just repealed, but you said 4.5 million. So that's the Republic of Ireland yeah. as opposed to Northern yeah. So, Ireland. Um, yeah, I just, yeah, Ireland. I am talking about Republic of Ireland. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, no, because uh, I, I think the population of Northern Ireland is tiny. I can't, I don't even know. Yeah, it's about 1.5 yeah, yeah. million. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, 4.5 million. Um, so, I was, yeah, because it was just on the point of it being shocked. Um, and so you, if you ban something like this, it doesn't mean that people don't do it. It's more that it just makes it incredibly difficult for people to do to do it. And those in worse situations, economic or um, social situations, then just lose out on something which I, I consider to be a right um, but Theresa, yeah, I mean, I, for me, it's a no-brainer about Theresa May bringing Northern Ireland's um, uh, abortion laws in line with the rest of the UK. Uh, I, and I, I can't well, really see... would then come up against... No, no, no. She comes up against Arlene Foster, the leader of the uh, DUP, who says that, the pro, that we are a pro-life party and we will continue to ar- articulate our position. It is an extremely sensitive issue and not one that uh, should have people taken to the streets in celebration. And, and they need if the DUP for votes. Up, <laughs> there yeah. you go. Okay. This all, all roads end back at Brexit. And here. Theresa May isn't really so, known as being, I mean, she, she says she's a feminist. Um, and I, be, I believe her when she says that, because I think that there's many different versions of feminism. And I'm, I'm happy for, for people to express feminism in whichever way they choose, because ultimately that's, that's an idea of equality, right? Especially if you are a woman. Um, but she, I, yeah, I can, I can imagine that she would uh, prioritize Arlene Foster's um, beliefs over. But there's probably what is there a party in Northern Ireland though? Because I can't imagine that Sinn Fein would be that keen on abortion either, right? Well, and actually, and if you look at um, any kind of recent polling, they say it's roughly in line with, with Southern Ireland, with the Republic, in terms of the amount of people that, that actually it's want just it. It's because the party but system have, is like, yeah. yeah. Party system, and uh, yeah, and we have somewhat of a logjam. But I must admit, I was, I was surprised to, to realise that um, such a major fundamental part of human rights has been denied to a section of, 
of the United Kingdom because we always kind of trumpet our 1967 legislation. I mean, we're one of the first major countries in Western Europe to actually le- legalize abortion. Mm. So, and to realize that there is a bit which is exempt, you know, yeah, I said it was something which I knew, but I had actually forgotten. Um, but uh, Amanda, in the UK, in the mainland UK, there is no real serious debate about whether a woman has the right to choose. There's no serious debate at all. Yes, you have the odd Tory MP like Jacob Rees-Mogg, who says that it's, it's immoral and it's wrong. But, you know, uh, the massive consensus is that this is a, a dead issue. Why is Roe versus Wade um, still a live debate in some parts of the States? The short answer to that word is religion. Uh, the longer answer to that question is... You know, internationally, across the board, what you actually see when it comes to the debate over abortion rights is it's actually a a Trojan horse, a stalking horse for the larger debate about women's rights and sexual liberation, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and pro-lifers, or, you know, I would call them anti-choicers, um, d- deny this. They say it's about fetal life, about human rights. But when you actually look at sort of when you actually put abortion laws and abortion opposition into context, what you see is a strong correlation between opposition to women's rights generally, opposition opposition to sexual liberation generally, and opposition to abortion rights. So, for instance, you know, I mean, obviously, y'all know more about UK's the UK's kind of cultural attitudes about this stuff than I do. But I get the sense that, you know, in Great Britain, as in France, as in Germany, as in a lot of Western Europe, you know, contraception is also non-controversial. Um, and in the United States, that as much as I wish that were true, because contraception is as universally used as it is over there it's still stigmatized and it is still controversial in ways that I I think would almost feel alien to a lot of people in Western Europe being in countries. Um, and, And it's because our religious right is very strong here. So, you know, for instance, under the Bush administration, they, they pushed this absence only sex education in our schools and across the United States, kids were required to be told that sex is only appropriate within the bounds of marriage and were strong and contraception was not even mentioned in what was supposed to be sex education. Now we've, because that failed so miserably, we've kind of turned the clock back a little, but statistics show that's actually still what most kids in the United States are learning in school. Um, when Barack Obama's administration tried to pass common sense regulation that requires insurance coverage to cover contraception without a copay, um, which is, you know, what international health organizations say is the bare minimum standard, you, you know, the religious right organizations immediately started suing and won, unfortunately, some court victories that you know, make it harder for at least some women to get contraception coverage and so on and so forth. So I think that's the difference there is sexual prudishness and, and hostility to women's equality is a lot more ingrained in the United States than it is in the UK, as far as I can tell, at least in terms of like the way the two issues are tied together. Um, And I think Ireland appears to have had similar roadblocks, cultural roadblocks in the past. And I'm, I'm very pleased to see that kind of falling away. Uh, One of the things I do know about Northern Ireland's constitution is it's kind of set in this gridlock between Protestant and Catholics. So there's, it's kind of set in the good Friday agreement that um, the, um, the leader and the deputy leader, I can't remember what they're called, um, have to be from one of the two opposing parties, which makes it incredibly different, difficult to move beyond this religious gridlock, um, which is is one of the reasons why I'm not surprised that Republic of Ireland still had the abortion laws. Um, not that the uh, Republic of Ireland has the same kind of political constitution, but it's still this whole kind of antagonistic ideal where, you know, it's existential, right? One, one lives and the other dies, and the Good Friday Agreement meant that both could live. Um, so Ireland is definitely um, constitutionally and perhaps culturally speaking as someone who's not an Irish person um, 
on the same sort of level as as uh, America in you know in in the mid in Central America. But I'd say that certainly from my experience of New York and my experience of California and the big um, states over there, you know, that's on the same sort of level as Western yeah. Europe, right? But then you um, you you have states yeah. like the one I grew up in, Texas, where religious organizers and and religious like openly religious people tend to get m- to muck around in politics a lot more. And and from what you're saying, it sounds to me that because of the identity politics, for lack of a better term, in Ireland, religion tends to be injected in the the discourse more than. Oh, it's t- it's totally yeah. inseparable. I've spoken with some people who are trying to break into and um, kind of create a centrist party or a non-religious party, and it's almost impossible to do constitutionally. In the States, um, so it's very much there by design. I'd say it's a, a little different here in the United States, but it is important to understand that the Republican Party in the United States, outside of maybe a couple of enclaves in New York and California, is utterly and totally a, aligned with a conservative religious identity. So it, it's, it's impossible to extract the two. It, it is functionally a, a religious party. Mm. You know, kind of interestingly, though, from uh, taking this purely from uh, a British liberal secular narrative, that what we, our impression of Ireland or our narrative of Ireland since independence was that the Catholic Church had great sway had great sway and your local priest had great uh, moral standing within within the community that is why you could have john paul ii come in in the early 1980s and through this rapt um welcome in ireland and then that eighth amendment was only written in the 1980s that the right of the unborn child is equal to that of the mother the 1980s. We're not talking about the 1880s, and it's codified into, into Irish. It was 1980s. So then, so with this view of Ireland being um, much more enthralled to the Roman Catholic Church, though you read everywhere that the power of the Catholic Church in Ireland is rapidly diminishing. That's the reason why you could have same-sex marriage legalised by referendum, what, just two, three years ago in Ireland. So it's rapidly changing to discover that the anomaly in the system now is this bit of the UK still is jarring, still <laughs> is jarring, you know. Especially because Italy is so Catholic, right? A- absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I, th- I think it is because of, because uh, you know, it's because of the how, the war and the bloodshed and, and and everything that happened through that period from about 1960 onwards until the mid 1990s. It, it was kind of the focus of, well, I mean, it's an obvious thing to say it was the focus of Irish politics for such a long time. Hmm. But then focusing on things like abortion <laughs> um, is, is very difficult for a country to do. <laughs> it's an assertion of a religious identity, right? And I think it's it's what happens in these situations is when a dominant religious group, religious um, or whatever other kind of identity group, feels their their dominance being threatened in any way, or their identity being threatened in any way, they often become conservative, punitive, and authoritarian in response right listen absolutely and and what you described there is the northern irish union mindset the lager that you know they're circling the wagons and, and retreating back which is fundamentally their kind of cult, cult, cultural construct but actually what has happened in northern ireland is that conservative catholics have actually united with conservative Protestants politically to create this to create and maintain this system that they're out of step with the with the main body politic of the United Kingdom, and we've let them get away with it to deny women a fundamental human right. You know that that we for a whole load of reasons of which maybe history will be kind, saying that that you know there was terrorism in Northern Ireland for some thirty years. Uh, etc right we've allowed this to go on well that good friday agreement ended uh, sorry started um, in the, yeah exactly so we've had 20 odd years for us to actually write the historic wrong 
And and the fact that we you know we look at the the, the southern na- nation on the island of Ireland and say they're enthralled to Catholic priests and it's all a bit dark and shady down there, and then we realise actually no, they've repealed it. They've got with the 21st century. No, they've got with the 20th century in the 21st century. And it's the UK that's le- a part of the UK that's left behind is a fucking disgrace. Anyway, so, uh, so just to push back, because, like, you know, Martin McGuinness was having huge rows with Arlene Foster in Northern Ireland. In, I mean, he died last year, but, you know, in, in January 2017. So this constitution and this kind of agreement and this peace treaty that's going on in Northern Ireland right now. Yes, the Good Friday Agreement happened in 97. Was it 2001 or 2003 where the next agreement was put in place? But it's still shaky, or at least it was still shaky last year. I haven't kind of caught up with Irish politics generally since then. Um, So I I do agree with you, Royfield. But um, yeah, I, I guess it's just trying to put a bit more context into why it was so difficult. And I know that we're talking about the Republic of Ireland and it's Northern Ireland. And mm. so these kind of concepts are getting confused. But yeah, it's not it, it's not the case that this um, this kind of religious battle and um, the tensions in Northern Ireland have completely gone away um, because of what happened in January 2017. Cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to The Things That Made England. I'm Roy Phil Brown and with me I have... David Crowther of the History of England. It was the best of time. It was the worst of time. She was the people's princess. We shall fight on the beaches. Oh, wait, man. These are the things that made England. We shall fight on the landing ground. These are the things that made I England. I have a body, but of a weak and feeble woman. These are the things that made England. And a king of England, too. These are the things that made England. Cry God for Harry! And these are the things that made England. England! And St. George! These are the things that made England. It gives wind in Churchill's sails to say we can continue to fight on. Well, there cannot be many more famous events in English history than 1066. It hurts, (laughs) even now. Because 1066 is important. Yeah. But there's aspects of modern British culture which I think get overlooked. So I'm proposing that this week we do Scar. For me, the English flag has in the past certainly become associated with factionalism, and, well, hideous racist and far-right views, and it's turned into a thing of disunity and almost xenophobia. The idea of this show is to decide on what things that make England... As she is, the country that, despite it all, we feel lucky to be part of. Every week, one of us, that's David and I, will pitch an idea to the other to be designated as one of the things that makes England distinctive. Go and join our shiny new Facebook site where once a month we will post a poll where, should you so desire, you can make your own very suggestions for applications to the I Made England Award. So, without more ado, let's do it. Here we are. It's that part of the show where we let our hair down. Well, I struggle to let my hair down because I think I'm technically or not profoundly bald. But, right, if I had hair, I'd let it down. So, Alice Thwaite, because I know you're a woman with things to do this evening, what's been your takeaway of the last seven days? Uh, it's it's a really quite lame one and it's something that I probably should have known before but I went to Bath in the UK for the first time this bank holiday weekend and I didn't realise that Bath actually had a natural thermal spring <laughs> and it, it was absolutely incredible 
it, like, I've never, you know, when you just don't, you, you don't usually get awed by nature in the UK in kind of like a magical way. It's more just like everything's very pretty. Um, so I don't know if you ever get the chance to go to Bath, the Roman baths really are spectacular. Um, and it's not just, I mean, the Romans were amazing at architecture. Also, they were amazing at slavery, um, which is why they were able to do it and their engineering feats. But the natural spring in itself is really, really, really cool. So that's my takeaway of the week. Tell you the last time I was in Bath, but I've only ever been to Bath twice. Um, it was just after the 2008 election and I had an Obama, Ninjas for Obama t-shirt on. And I just happened to be wearing this thing. And I was sat in, sat in this hotel having breakfast and this uh, American came up to me and said, you're an American? And I went, no, I'm not. And he said, well, why are you wearing that? And then, why am I wearing what? And I was like, and he said, your T-shirt. Why would you wear that if you're not American? And we, it was just the most, I, this thing was just a thing of apparel for me. Obviously, there was the message, but I just threw it on that morning. I didn't know what I was wearing. But he was questioning me as to why I was wearing this Ninjas for Obama T-shirt. But, and then just, and it was just this kind of bizarre conversation. He just scratched his head. Why would an American, someone who's not American wearing this? But then walking around Bath, apart from the fact that it might have these great thermal springs, it is the most beautiful Georgian city with its crescents. And then seeing all those nannies dressed up in their, what, the 1930s, 40s apparel, push, pushing those perambulators. It's just, it, it, it is slightly, it's kind of, it's beautiful. Oh, I it's didn't see that. Harry Potter. You didn't see that? You, no, you there weren't any 1930s nannies. Oh, there were loads. Maybe this is maybe they've all changed the uniform, but there's obviously an agency. I do um, know that in the 19 in September they have the Jane Austen festival there every year because I went to the Jane Austen Centre as well because I'm a huge fan <laughs> of Jane Austen. Because how can you not be? And um, <laughs> she and and they kind of said that every single um, September for about 10 to 14 days. Mm-hmm. They um, and I know that the election would have been in November, so it wouldn't have been the right timing. But it does seem like there's quite a lot of these dressing up style events. It could have been a Mary Poppins convention. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, wouldn't put it past Bath. Amanda, go. What's been your takeaway the last seven days? Um, so I I also was gone over the holiday weekend, um, and I went to Dallas, Texas for the Con of Thrones, they call it, and it is a a nerdy convention for Game of Thrones fans. <laughs> and wow. And if you love Game of Thrones, especially if you love the book series, A Song of Ice and Fire, I cannot recommend going enough if they have another one. Um, it's really fun just to like spend a weekend nerding out with people about this property that you, you know and love. And um, they have a, the panels, are, some are serious and educational, but a lot of them are just goofy. Um, and fun and full of dirty jokes and, and just a, a good way to nerd out for a weekend. So um, there's a lot of generalized sci-fi and fantasy conventions in the United States, and I've been to some myself, like Comic-Con and Convergence. But it, it was particularly fun to go to one that was specifically for just Game of Thrones. My friend Aziz Eldori, who does the History of Westeros podcast, even took a couple of sessions there. He he said it was good fun. Now, um, mine, um, when I can't think of something, invariably I fall back on sport. And this weekend, there were two Titanic uh, sporting contests. There was Liverpool versus Real Madrid. And um, most people probably know that Real Madrid... Uh, beat Liverpool in the Champions League final 3-1. Yeah. But as, as, a, as a little kid, uh, when I played for my school, I actually was the goalkeeper, which is stunning considering that I'm like, what, five foot seven now. So um, as a kid, I wasn't small, but I stopped growing at about the age of 14 or 15 and all my friends kind of shot past me. So I've always had an affinity with goalkeepers. Uh, Carius, the Liverpool goalkeeper, made two monumental schoolboy errors for two goals and that's the thing if you're a goalkeeper in football you make a mistake it's a goal if you're a striker you make a mistake you just miss a goal but you but your team is not in deficit when you make a mistake or a a defender and it's such a lonely and a weird position this guy made two 
horrendous mistakes that were so bad that if you've seen that on, on a schoolboy pitch on a school pitch you would you would laugh it and say come on we're not five-year-olds and whatever they were so bad what he did that he's almost been above criticism that people have just said you know what you're never going to play for this team again. Mm. As a human being, you have to just put your arm around this man because he must be inconsolable on one of the biggest stages of world sport, arguably the second after the of the World Cup final, the Champions League final. He was shown up actually to be an arse, really. It was so bad. Wasn't that, it um wasn't it that he'd made as many mistakes in that one match as he'd made in the previous 35 as well wasn't it that? He he well he when he signed for Liverpool he came as this um he actually signed for Liverpool for literally no money about 4 million quid and he'd had um a, a really kind of rocky debut and he was switching between him and the other goalkeeper who was the primary goalkeeper of Liverpool because he kept on making mistakes and then he was given this another chance at about the start of the year and he's been brilliant he's and, and and he's been a key factor in Liverpool's form into the fact that they came third in in the Premier League but these mistakes were so bad I watched it in a in a pub and when he tried to roll the ball out and it just meekly hit this this guy's leg and went in the goal mm. everybody just you just stunned to silence mm. it was so bad <laughs> and then to make another mistake you know in the same match of equal fallibility right just to hear Mark Lawrence and an ex-Liverpool uh, player just to say well there's nothing you can be said here other than he's a human being <laughs> but he can never play oh. for this club again mm. you know it's as bad it's as bad as that it was as bad as that and it's just the loneliness of a goalkeeper that you know um, when you do a great save people say yeah great save but the, the failure, the highs are never as big as, as the lows are. The lows are much more detrimental. Anyway, that's my takeaway. Fall, fell back on sport, but carry us. Well, I feel sorry for you, geese. Right, um, Amanda, why don't you tell us how, where people can catch up with you on the social medias and what you're up to at the moment? Um, I write for salon.com, so you can check me out there. And on Twitter, I'm at Amanda Marcotte. How about you, Miss Thwaite? Oh, on Twitter, I'm Alice L. Thwaite. And yeah, I don't write for anyone right now, but I'm happy to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I graduate very soon. And no one would actually pay me to write for them because I can't write. Uh, but um, on the Twitters, I can be fine at Roy Ford. And of course, we are at Mid Atlantic Show. And did say this in the last show with Mick and Chris that actually uh, we are opening up our, our, our Twitter feed to our contributors. Um, so go and find us there. And there will be a new Facebook page. I'm changing it all up. And it will be a group and not a page. Um, remember, folks. Uh, we are the children of light. Uh, we believe that everybody uh, deserves a fair crack of the whip uh, in life. Uh, we don't believe in hate. We're the nice people. We're the lefties. Though Alice might say that, oh, you've got to keep an open mind. And yes, you do. But ultimately and fundamentally, um, equality is where it's at. See you all again sometime soon. Toodaloo. Bye bye. but let's have a look there's a nice ball by Kroos makes a good run he's onside Benzema it's Gareth Bale again and it's a howler from Carrius. two goalkeeping errors tonight by Carrius have cost Liverpool so dear in the Champions League final the first goal from Bale was spectacular the second one was so fortunate 
it's probably going to be enough now to win the Champions League for Real Madrid. It's Real Madrid 3, Liverpool 1, and you cannot legislate for that. You see Gareth lines it up. Takes the shot on and moves about a little bit, but he knows it's a big mistake. It's the team that makes the less mistakes go on and win games. And there's been a couple tonight. You see here, Gareth just lines the shot up, no problem, no pressure on the ball. He's having a shot, bit of movement, but that's easy, that. that's an easy one, that. Well, that's it. It's heartbreak for Liverpool. And the difference in emotion at the end of the game is tangible. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.